you know, at the end of the day, uh, having a great startup boils down to picking the right team in a great market. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to entrepreneur and investor Naval Ravikant, who is best known for our founded AngelList, a platform where you can find a great startup job, invest in a startup, or raise money. He's also an active angel investor and has invested in more than 100 companies, which include Twitter, Uber, Yammer, Postmates, and more. In this week's episode, Naval talks about the perfect way to find what you're good at, how to get started in learning about cryptocurrencies, what's most exciting about the effects of blockchain, the startup ecosystem for both VCs and founders, and also what he'll change about today's education system. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you, Naval, for taking the time today. I appreciate you spending it with me. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. So I'd like to start by asking, what is your advice to young people who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives, but not sure what? Yeah, I think there's kind of this bad idea that somehow at the age of 16 to 21, you're supposed to somehow figure out what you're going to do for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life. And I think not only is that a wrong-headed idea that's based on you know some concept of basically vocational training where you study to be a doctor for five or 10 years and then you're a doctor forever, or you study to be a lawyer for five or 10 years and then you're a lawyer forever. So it's partially based on that and partially just kind of on false certainty. It's also just kind of a fun question that adults like to ask young people just to kind of see how they think. I would say just forget about that whole concept. Just do what is intellectually interesting to you and is difficult. Difficult, otherwise, why are you in school? If it's easy to do, you can just do it at home. And then kind of just pursue what's intellectually interesting to you. And over time, you become good at that. You don't get rewarded in society anymore for doing things that you can be trained how to do. Because if you can be trained how to do them, then the next monkey can be trained how to do them. And then you can be replaced. And then you don't have to end up being paid with your work. You just get paid based on the time that you put in, which is not going to be that great. So I would argue that all the interesting professions and all the interesting people don't settle down on a single career too quickly, and they usually do it by following intellectual interest. Now, the problem is you follow this advice, and you could end up you know, just reading English literature all day long and not necessarily building a career. And if you really want to build a career, you want to make money, then that's not going to be good advice. So I would temper that by saying that if you have a choice of what to study, study the hard things, study the STEM topics, you know, science, technology, engineering, math, because those are foundational skills that are not going to go out of style. They're going to help you no matter what you do, you know, even if you ended up being you know, an artist, an artist with a scientific background, I think is more interesting than an artist with a pure English lit background. And given that you're spending all this time and money in school anyway, study something hard. But in terms of what you do, do what you think is interesting, especially when you're young, especially when you're straight out of school, you need the freedom to explore and find out what it is that you like to do, because you're not going to have figured it out in school. It's an unusual person who's figured it out in, by the time they get out of school. And even there, the world changes so fast that the thing that you thought was interesting may no longer be interesting 20 years later. It's like, look at the medical career. Everybody who studied to be a doctor for decades, you know, now is facing a very different kind of employment than when they went in because now it's much more of a government-run institution. There's much less private practice, much more large hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think are some ways one can figure out what he or she is good at? Yeah, I think my rule for that is like if something comes easily to you and doesn't feel like hard work to you, but it looks like hard work to your friends or, or if your friends are always saying, boy, so and so, I don't I don't understand how you do that. 
man, the way you, you're such a fast typist, or you're so good with computers, or you're so good with people, or you have just a knack for helping people solve their emotional issues or whatever it is. You know, in my case, when I was a kid, like I was always dissecting businesses. I just couldn't help it. So even though I wanted to be a scientist or I thought I wanted to be a scientist, the reality is I was going to go more into business or the business of science known as technology because I just loved dissecting businesses and I was effortlessly good at it. I could look at my neighborhood pizza shop and be like, oh, well, you know, they should have instead of two people running around cash register and pizzeria, they should divide and conquer and they should simplify the menu and they could probably charge a little bit more for that item and should charge a little bit less for that item, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just always had ideas on how to optimize the business. And it just came effortlessly to me. It didn't feel like work. It was just natural. So I think that other people, I always kind of look at like, what is thing that comes easily to you that is difficult for other people? Odds are you like that thing. And it could just be a skill set. It doesn't necessarily have to be a vocational. But there are skill sets that come more naturally to you. And trying to imitate other people and copy them so that you can be good at what they're good at, that's a fool's errand. The combinatorics of human DNA are staggeringly large. You're not going to beat anyone else at being them. And no one's going to beat you at being you. So you may as well figure out what you're the best in the world at and then go see if the world needs that thing. That's just going to come more out of what you just like to do and you're naturally good at as opposed to you're trained to be good at. The training is a little bit overrated. Majority of value from schools comes from filtering who gets in and credentialing those people in the right way and not really educating them. And that's kind of a you know dirty secret. What do you wish you had started doing much earlier in your career, specifically like actions or activities with compounding effects? Um, I wish I'd studied a lot more math because mathematics is upstream of almost everything else. You know, like the, the old joke is that before I got to college, I wish they told me that psychology is really biology, biology is really chemistry, chemistry is really physics, physics is really mathematics. And, you know, you can even extend that. Mathematics is really just philosophy and logic. And on the other end, psychology, you know, it's like uh, economics is actually, especially microeconomics is mostly psychology. So uh, I wish I just studied math because math is at the top of the food chain. If you're you're good at math, you can go learn anything else. But if you're not good at math, then there are textbooks you'll encounter that you'll be hesitant to open because the math is beyond you. The other thing is, I think being good at the basics is way more important than being good at the advanced stuff. So even in math, being great at arithmetic and geometry is going to be much more useful in algebra is going to be much more useful to you in life than being incredibly good at calculus unless you happen to be in a profession that needs calculus. And I find that a lot of people, they lose the plot on the basics at some point and then they end up sort of muddled thinkers who have memorized lots of formulas and fancy sounding statements. But unless you can reconstruct it from the ground up through pure logic, you don't really understand it. So I think I would have spent more time on the fundamentals, more time on mathematics. And then when I found something that I was interested in, I would have just done it rather than seeking advice or training or learning. The reality is, yes, you can learn from other people people, but there's no substitute for learning by doing. So for example, if you want to start a company at some point, which is the big thing in Silicon Valley, then just go start a company. You're going to learn far more starting that company than you will apprenticing with other people on how to start a company. Even if the first one fails, chalk that up as your training wheels and your learning experience, but that learning experience will be far more valuable than doing it under somebody else. All right. What habit in the last few years have you developed that has changed your life? I developed a daily workout habit, which is great. I was never that healthy or fit growing up, so it took me some time. But now in the morning, I work out every single day. It's not the most intense workout. It's not the most detailed. And I think that people 
inherently they know how to eat and how to work out, but they spend a lot of time arguing or optimizing what the workout is or what they should be eating. And that's just a way of procrastinating from the inevitable. It, it almost doesn't matter what you do every day, but if you move your body in a physically exerted way every day, then I think that habit will have lifelong benefits. The mind is part of the brain and it's attached to the body and we're mechanical mobile creatures. And there's just no way getting away from that. If your body is not healthy, then your mind won't be sharp either, or at least not once you're past your 20s. And do you have a trainer that you work out with every day? No, because it's too much overhead. So part of what makes working out every day possible for me is I can literally roll out of bed, get on my yoga mat with a couple of weights and just do it right there. If I had to go and go to the gym and then work out there and then leave the gym and go to work, like the overhead on that whole transaction would be an hour and a half, whereas working out by myself is 20 minutes. And what's something you know you should do, but you haven't done yet? I should not engage in any substance abuse whatsoever. Like I should just stop drinking completely and I should learn to just be happy and peaceful and calm without needing any of that stuff. But the reality is I still enjoy my glass of wine. You know, one could argue that the big killer as you age is stress. And so these rituals for de-stressing are good. But I'm always kind of a little envious of the people who have a calm enough mind that they don't need to engage in any of that stuff. But I'm getting there gradually. And when you feel lethargic, what are some of the things you do to re-motivate yourself? I used to get lethargic. I'm not really lethargic these days anymore. I think there's two kinds of lethargy. There's physical and there's kind of emotional slash mental. Physical lethargy comes from you're just taking bad care of your body. You're not working out or you're dependent on caffeine or you're engaging in substance abuse. So just watch out for those things. The emotional and mental lethargy is a little more complicated. It really just comes from being burned out from working on things you don't want to work on. When you want to work on something, you're really excited. I mean, to give you an example, like say like, you know, you're a teenage male and you're like getting on Tinder for the first time and you're trying to figure out how to date women. You have infinite energy for that because you're motivated. <laughs> like doing that all day long does not rob you of energy. On the other hand, you know, studying a, a topic that you don't want to do does rob you of energy. So, you know, if you look at someone playing video games, they seem to have unlimited energy. So I think energy comes and goes uh, just based on are you interested in what you're doing or not. So keep moving until you find something that is as interesting to you and is productive as some of your more unproductive activities like playing video games. And aside from working out every morning, do you have any other morning, afternoon, or evening routines? I don't have other routines. Sometimes I stretch a little bit at night before I go to bed. I guess this is kind of a routine. It's not an enforced routine. I don't, I don't believe in beating myself up and saying thou shalt or thou must. But just by sheer interest, I usually read every night before I go to bed. Part of keeping it interesting means I just read whatever I feel like. So if I want to read fiction, I'll read fiction. If I want to read junk, I'll read junk. If I want to read science, I'll read science. If I want to read philosophy, I'll read philosophy. But I'll just read whatever I feel like. And I have tons of books open at any given time and I'll flip around in them. I don't care about the ordering. I don't care about finishing. I just care about like, oh, I'm going to find something that I'm really interested in. I'll just read until I'm tired and I'll go to sleep. So that is kind of a regular ritual for me. And I think a lot of people talk about reading. Very few people actually do it. And there are many reasons. You know, we're all busy and we're also unfortunately trained that like reading is something you do for homework as part of school. But reading for its own sake is really, really interesting. And I think we just have to get away from the straitjacket of I must read intellectually interesting things or I must read or I must finish the, that book that I'd started and, you know I don't love it so I'm stuck in it so my model is instead of reading one book and struggling to finish it I have 50 books I've opened at any given time and I would actually rather reread my favorite books than read a new book that's not very good 
and I feel no compulsion to finish a book or to read it in order or to even read the beginning or the middle or the end. I just flip around and read whatever catches my fancy and it works for me. What books have you reread the most? There's quite a few. I mean, I'm going to exhibit recency bias. I'm just going to go through the ones that I've read recently. But Charlie Munger's Poor Charlie's Almanac is a great book, probably the best book on business that I know. It's a collection of his lectures and talks. I like Siddhartha, the Herman Hesch novel. It's spiritual, beautiful, fictional. I love Snow Crash, the old cyberpunk novel by Neil Stevenson. Probably read that a dozen times. Um, Sapiens, you all know of Harari's book. I've read that a couple of times. I, I re- when I reread, what I've done is I'm just re-skimming highlights that I've made. I like some philosophy books. I like Osho, so I've read him uh, a fair bit, a couple of his books. Krishnamurti is another philosopher I like. There's a couple of science books, like uh, Carlo Rovelli's books on quantum gravity are really interesting. They're very approachable, even though it sounds fancy. Uh, Richard Feynman's, you know, Show Your Joking Mr. Feynman, his six easy pieces, six not-so-easy pieces. I refer back to those books a lot. I just got the Princeton Companion to Mathematics, thumb through that occasionally and just pick a random spot that I can understand. It looks interesting and go into it. And it's not because I'm going to be a mathematician, but it just keeps my brain sharp. And, you know, these are intellectual logic puzzles. I've reread most of Matt Ridley's books. Matt Ridley's amazing. He wrote The Genome, The Origins of Virtue, The Red Queen, The Rational Optimist, The Evolution of Everything. He's a very powerful thinker. So those are the kinds of things I read. I also like reading original sources. So I've read Origin of Species by Darwin, Watson and Crick. It's always better to read the original if you can. Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith. You know, you don't have to read regurgitated stuff all the time. We, we also get used to that in school because schools want to sell you textbooks and the professors want to sell you their books. But sometimes it's better just to go back to the originals. And what are some of the things that you are doing to keep your brain sharp? Is there anything new that you're trying to learn? I'm always reading and I'm always trying to learn new things. So I'm really interested in cryptocurrencies in the last couple of years. So I just read everything I could find on, on that topic that's interesting to me. So I think I naturally am a creature who likes to stay intellectually interested. So I don't need to do anything special on that. Even over time, my friends have ended up being the people who are also intellectually curious and I can learn a lot from them. I do spend a lot of time in Twitter, which normally I think would be a time suck. But the way I justify that to myself is that I'm actually trying to connect with a small number of really bright people and learn things from them in a highly compressed manner, almost pithy wisdom that then I can remember and recall when I, when it's useful to me. I've made some great intellectual friends on Twitter. And let's talk a little bit about crypto. I remember you telling me about that in late 2013 or early 2014. What, what would be your advice to somebody young who has heard of the blockchain and Bitcoin and Ethereum, but doesn't really know what to do next? Just dive in. There's no great starting point. People have written good primers, some of which I've retweeted out and are linked to from my Twitter account. But just get in there and start following the top people in crypto and eventually it'll make sense to you. It's a new emerging science. So there's not going to be a you know well laid out textbook that has all the definitions. It's an emerging field. So you're going to just have to learn alongside everybody else. It's intellectually fascinating. It's a really deep rabbit hole in, in which we're both reworking internet protocols. We're reworking how we organize humans into networks uh, and we're reworking the nature of money and finance. And the intersection of those three is the most exciting thing I've seen in my lifetime. So for me, it's infinitely intellectual, curious rabbit hole that I can just get lost in for hours and hours. And I do. Best way to learn for me is I just go follow the top crypto accounts on Twitter and then I read what they write. And then I try and verify and understand it for myself. Going back to the original point of starting with the basics, go and read the original Bitcoin white paper and the original Ethereum white paper. So start with the basics. What do you believe about blockchain that few other people don't? 
I think they're a fundamentally new way of organizing humans. I think that you know, the story of humans is a story of networks. We organize ourselves into networks that we then use to get things done. And networks, and I use the term loosely, so you could also use it as a protocol or in sapiens, you all know, I've heard you say stories or the storytelling monkey. But essentially, humans are, are cooperators. We cooperate across genetic boundaries and our cooperation results in things like nations and currencies and religions and beliefs. And when you have these networks of humans operating together, you need a protocol you need a way for them to cooperate the protocol lays out the rules of cooperation and normally these protocol networks have need somebody in charge because somebody always cheats somebody always takes more than they give and so historically to organize networks of humans we've had people in charge you might have a king in charge or a leader you might have an elite or an aristocracy you might have a corporation like a google or an uber running their various networks or you may just have a commons like a mob or you may have a democracy where every person gets one vote and this is historically how we've organized networks and the problem is that if you put a single person in charge you can end up with a despot or a tyrant if you put a elite in charge, then they become an aristocracy over time and extract a big tax. If you put a corporation in charge, then you've created a monopoly. And if you put the crowd in charge, sometimes you just get a thoughtless mob. So over time, you know, these are the story of the human race is an interplay between these different ways of managing and governing networks. And at the same time, we have networks and protocols that are completely open. Today's internet is a version of that. The English language as a protocol is open. We communicate in the English language, not owned by anybody. Imagine if English was owned by Disney and we could only speak Disney approved words, we had to give Disney a license fee. And every time a new word was added, like we'd have to get Disney to approve the new word, right? It would be ludicrous. We wouldn't want to do it. But that's because we have an open protocol today. So open protocols are the way to go. And what blockchains do is they allow us to have open protocols in almost everything. Protocols where we can kind of cooperate in a way where no single entity is in charge, where we all participate in the network. But unlike a mob or unlike a democracy or unlike a commons, it's not completely flat. It's based on merit. So in the Bitcoin network, the more security you provide for the network, you get paid in more Bitcoin. You have more of a say in how it's run. Ethereum, you get that for compute verification. In the Filecoin network, you get paid for providing storage. And the people who provide the storage get a say and you know, get rewarded by the network in Filecoin, as well as a say in how the network is governed and evolves. So uh, blockchain-based networks in that sense are a lot more like marketplaces. They're merit-based open systems as opposed to free-for-alls or systems that are ruled by small groups of people or entities or corporations. And that, to me, is super exciting. That is the promise of blockchain. It's going to liberate us from, from single points of control, and it's going to democratize access to all kinds of resources that are held inside these networks, but at the same time have it actually work and be efficient, which pure mob rule doesn't get you to. And you've been very vocal about the blockchain and crypto. Is there a reason for this? I think it's one of those rare things where you can combine something that is good for humanity with something that is technically, intellectually interesting and is being developed right in our time and with something that is also financially lucrative. So you can kind of combine your work, kind of your broader passion for humanity, as well as your intellectual interest all in one thing. I'm not saying that's the only place where that happens. There are other domains where that's happening too. This is just the one that happens to capture my interest. And could you comment a little bit on the, the hype cycle and how to actually think about technological progress? There's always a, a hype cycle to almost everything, including technology. I'm a little skeptical of the hype cycle that's laid out now because now it's a formula. It's like, yeah, there'll always be a boom and there'll always be a crash. And it's like The moment everybody believes something, especially in these kinds of reflexive situations, it stops being true. So now that everybody believes in the hype cycle, they're convinced crypto, for example, is going to go through the hype cycle. Not necessarily. It may go through a variation of it that's unrecognizable or hard to understand or not one that you can capitalize on. 
So I kind of try not to pay attention to what everybody else is doing so much. And I'd really try to understand everything from first principles. First principles means that you should be able to derive it without relying on definitions. If you keep having to define things by using fancy words, then that's a problem. The fancier the words you have to use to explain something, the less you actually understand it. So I try to understand everything in very, very simple terms. And I would rather understand the basics and not know the complicated stuff than vice versa, because then your knowledge is on very shaky ground. So that's one way to avoid the hype cycle. Another is to not have too many preferences. So if you have strong preferences as to how you think things should work out, either because you have a very strong sense of identity or because your politics lean very sharply left or right, then you're just much less likely to see things the way they're actually going to work out. The more dispassionate you are, the more likely you are to actually call the correct outcome because we're masters at fooling ourselves and we want the result to work out a certain way. What uh, first order principles do you think a new technology project or startup should follow? There's a set around how you organize and structure a startup that you probably shouldn't innovate on too much because you're already trying to innovate on your basic product as it is. At the end of the day, uh, having a great startup boils down to picking the right team in a great market. So, and, and that's glib, that's simple, that's easy, except it's incredibly hard. It's really hard to figure out who the right team is. You almost have to be snobbish about it. The best group teams, I think, have Although it depends on the domain, like in the blockchain space, you don't need salespeople. But uh, let's say an enterprise software, then a salesperson would really be really important. But the general classic configuration is one person who's really good at selling and one person who's really good at building a team up. And then they should have extremely high integrity and trust with each other. If they don't have the longitudinal data of having worked together for a while, then they could be in for a nasty surprise with different personalities or different goals. And then you want to pick a market that you are convinced is going to be big, but is not big yet. Because if it's big today, then it's already being pursued by lots and lots of people. And if you're not convinced it's going to be huge, then don't do not do it. It takes just as much work and just as much effort to run the pizza parlor or the laundromat down the street as it does to run Google, at least for the founder. They work just as hard. They put in the hours. You know, the average small business owner works their fingers to the bone. So they're trying just as hard. They're just doing something that's a lot less lucrative. And in this, in their case, requires less specific knowledge and is therefore subject to more competition. If you have specific knowledge in the technology industry and you get to apply that in a domain where not many people will compete with you, then go after the largest market possible. It, it won't take more work to build that business. I, first principles that I would stick to is only work with really amazing people. Better off not working with anyone than working with the wrong people. And try and do something that you think is going to be huge because it takes no extra work compared to being small. Trying to do something small takes just as much work. And what markets do you think are undervalued today? I think that's really hard to call. You know, I'm a technology bull. I still think that technology is underrated relative to the impact it's going to have. People treat technology like it's some other sector alongside. They'll say, oh, energy is a sector and, you know, finance is a sector and education is a sector and technology is a sector. No, all of these sectors used to be tech sectors once upon a time. The history of the human race is the history of technology. If it weren't for technology, we would just be monkeys sitting around in the cold trying to figure out how to start a fire. Fire is the beginning of technology that turned us from being prey into being predators. And all human progress comes from technology. It's just that when something starts working really well, we stop calling it technology and we give it a different name. And what's happened now is the pace of technical evolution and technical innovation is increasing. You no longer have to be in Silicon Valley. You no longer have to be venture back. You no longer need a distribution channel from a big retailer. You no longer need permission from your betters, your superiors to succeed. So technology innovation is increasing. I think the number of successful startups is going up and it's all about tech. These days, if you're in Silicon Valley and eventually in the rest of the world, either you're telling a computer what to do or a computer is telling you what to do. 
either you're programming the Uber app or the Uber app is programming you and telling you like where to drive the car. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that transaction. So technology, I still believe, is underrated. And I believe that every other industry sector is actually a subset of the technology sector and is now vulnerable to disruption by technology thanks to smartphones and blockchains and better microprocessors and software in the Internet. In terms of teams, how do you find diamonds in the rough, whether that's someone to invest in or someone to hire? That's the big one. If you look at the really successful venture capitalists, if you look at the really successful even companies, what they do is they build a brand that attracts all the best and brightest of them. And then they run a very tight filter function on those people. And that filter function has a certain je ne sais quoi. You know, there's no shortcuts to it. I think ultimately, you know, if you are a good technologist yourself, you can be a snob about it and are only associated with other good technologists. And that's one way to pick them. Same if you're a great salesperson, you're going to know when somebody else can sell or when they can. So you just kind of have to trust your gut instinct on it. And I think actually trying to rationalize and justify and put it into a checklist will cause you to fall into a trap. It's the same trap that schools create where someone can get straight A's but still not be a very remarkable person because all they've shown is that they have an ability to follow the rules. What unique traits do you look for to identify founders with actual intellectual rigor? Do you have any thoughts on I that? Just, I just talk to them. Do I learn from them? Are they really smart? Are they clear thinkers? Can they debate me on something that they understand really well? Can they teach me something? I think that ability to, when a founder comes up, and they're obviously intellectually interested in something and they've thought it through to a deep level and they can explain it, they can defend it. And it comes out of genuine interest as opposed to they read in a book or it's the hot thing that they should get into. That's what gets me excited. What is your best lesson learned from investing so far? It's so random. <laughs> There's so much luck involved. You see great people fail every day and you see, you know, less talented people succeed all the time. But I think over a long enough period of time, it sort of balances itself out. But in any single given move, you know, it's hard to say. You know, a lot of times you'll have two talented people who are equally talented and one will win and their company will do okay. And the other one will really win and they'll make billions. And it's just a lot of it's just market timing and what, what the market wanted at that time. So it's not, you know, it's never that easy. And I don't like to draw distinctions between successful and unsuccessful people. There is a tendency in all industries to think that successful people are smart and unsuccessful people are dumb. And I think especially in industries like technology, which are so hit driven and so random that it's good to have some humility about the whole thing. And there's clearly been an influx of capital. What's your advice to new investors? There's been an influx of capital and there's been an influx of entrepreneurs. So I think that there's, it's balanced out at least at some level. My advice to investors is, you know, money is a commodity. To be in the venture capital business, you gotta have uh, access, you gotta have judgment, and you gotta have proprietary deal flow. And of course, you gotta have capital. You know, so with AngelList, for example, we're doing this micro funds program. We're making capital available to small up and coming individuals who are founders today, but want to be funding their friends or good, good companies. So we're giving them these little micro funds. So you can get access to capital, at least to try it out. If you have a little bit of a track record or interest in the space, what you really need to do is you need to have the judgment. It, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You need to have a way to attract all the companies to you. So you need a strong brand. And the brand is going to come from having done something interesting. Like you're doing podcasts, you're doing Internapalooza, and somebody else might be running like the engineering group at Stanford. And somebody else might be writing lots of papers on Bitcoin. Somebody else might be an open source contributor. Someone else might be doing the Hacker News meetups. So you need to have a brand where entrepreneurs are going to want to work with you for something. It may even be Andrew Chen, where you're like the viral marketing guy. And then once you have the brand, then you need to have a strong filter where you can apply your judgment and reject most opportunities come your way and go for the ones where you think there's a great team going after a big market and they're high integrity, good people that you want to work with and learn from. 
What are some ineffective things you see investors wasting their time on? I see investors doing a lot of cocktail parties. I don't know any great brand that got built off of doing cocktail parties or happy hours. I see investors who are like writing these blog posts all about like, you know, this is how you raise money for me or this is what I look for in a startup. I find those incredibly arrogant navel gazing. You know, if I was a entrepreneur and I went to some VC's blog and all, all he or she has written about is like, how do you raise money from me, 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 me? What's my judgment? What's my criteria? What's my this? I just think this is like just an arrogant person who hasn't done that much and is just really enjoying the trappings of power. So I think VCs spend too much time talking to other VCs, writing about themselves and doing generic things like uh, conferences and meetups and, and cocktail parties, when in reality, they should be becoming domain experts on something where they can add value. They should be cultivating networks of the best and brightest individuals in the space. And they should demonstrate themselves some operating capability. Either they ran a company that was successful or they developed some product or contributed to an open source project or something. I think the bar for venture should be just as high as it is for an entrepreneur. But a lot of VCs kind of treat it as, well, I've got the money now, so they have to come to me. So I can do, I can just kind of relax a bit. And the market's just too competitive. And what about for founders? What are some ineffective things that you see founders waste their time on? I see founders spend too much time chasing VCs for money when the reality is if you're building a great product, fundraising is actually relatively easy. Usually what happens is when your company is not doing that well, fundraising is really hard. When your company is doing great, fundraising is almost too easy and you're oversubscribed. So you should definitely, of course, talk to VCs and paying investors. But if you're paying five or ten of them and none of them are dramatically interested and one or two of them aren't chasing you with a term sheet, then the correct answer is to go back and maybe work on having a better team and work on having a better product than it is to keep chasing new VCs. And what's your thought on San Francisco and Silicon Valley? Do you think people need to be here or um, are you starting to invest a lot outside of the Bay Area? It's changing. The Bay Area is still the best classic place to do a tech company because of the network that's here, giant network effect. But it's starting to fade a little bit. I think Silicon Valley will be fine, but I just think an increasing percentage of new companies are being formed outside of Silicon Valley. If you look at the blockchain crypto world, that's actually probably the most distributed of the recent technology waves where you can't pinpoint a center of gravity where they're all operating out of. There's at least six cities and lots of scattered places, lots of remote developers. And it makes sense because they're developing protocols and because they're fundable anywhere, because they can raise money through ICOs without having to move to Silicon Valley and go begging up and down Sand Hill Road. So I think historically, a combination of capital, good weather, universities, and just a prevalence of entrepreneurs as well as people who know how to scale businesses in Silicon Valley has created a strong network effect lock. But I think that's starting to fade. You know, California's ruinous taxation. It's a pretty mismanaged state when it comes to governance. It's still got great weather really expensive to live in. They don't build any more housing and, you know, severe quality of life problems in some cases just from mismanagement. So I don't think California has the the lock that it used to. It does still have the best warm, dry coastline in the United States. The United States still has a lot of rule of law. But I think that you could start a company, especially if it's one blockchain-based or cryptocurrencies that's located elsewhere in the world and do just fine. And what are the things you would change about the current education system? I think I mentioned earlier the current education system is much more about, especially at the at the university level, is much more about filtering and credentialing. I think people waste a lot of time learning things that no longer have value, like all the memorization-based stuff should just go away. We have Google these days, and our kids will have Google or equivalent, so they don't need to memorize so many things anymore. I think we spend too much time on advanced stuff, like we move people to calculus without even knowing if they really understand and like or good at the basics, like the basic math. 
So I think we should also just always be checkpointing with kids to make sure they understand the basics before pushing them on. I think too much of it is based on rules and following orders. You know, grades are a function of how well did you play the school game, not necessarily how well you understood what, what you're actually supposed to be doing. We don't spend enough time on computer science and programming, given how fundamental computers are to our society now. Like everyone should be doing computer science. It should be like a basic thing. And I also don't think we should be like sending kids to get debt you know, for five years of education and degrees in uh, social sciences and liberal arts that are never going to make them employable and pay back these, all this debt. You know, we're graduating these kids out from school under massive debt burdens and no hopes of digging themselves out. So I think we have to get much more hard-nosed about saying, well, like, okay, here's a major where if you go into debt for this, then you can get a job and you can pay it back. And here's another major that if you go into it, don't take on debt. Go find the cheapest school that'll do it or learn it online yourself because you have intellectual interest, but don't take on $200,000 of debt because, you know, a PhD in medieval history is not going to give you the earning power to pay this off without ruining the rest of your life. And if they want to make that choice, they can, but I just don't think we educate kids in that choice. We, we kind of go through this fiction of that everything is equally valuable and then the real world has to teach them the lesson the hard way. I also think you could start teaching some other things earlier. But I fear the like things like nutrition, relationships, meditation, exercise, and those kinds of things. Except the problem is that those kinds of things become highly politicized. And I have very little faith in the educational system, which is a one-size-fits-all monster machine to figure out the right way to do that. The sad thing is I think your real education is what you get on the side from the Internet and the books when you're not busy being in school. Do you think we'll see some of those changes in our lifetime? I think they'll be driven by people going off the greatest part of the homeschooling or the unschooling movement. We're seeing some of it in private schooling, which is a little unfair because only the rich people get to go to private schools. So we're creating this two-tier society, but I think eventually it will happen because parents just care too much about their kids to let them be fed into the, you know, the public school grinder is the only choice. What's something controversial today that you think will be commonplace tomorrow? I think eventually we're going to do with this idea of a completely free internet. I think the internet will become a giant grid that will use blockchains and associated technologies to route all kinds of bandwidth, compute, storage, energy, etc. And it'll, you'll be paying infinitesimally small fractions of a cent for every computation in the internet, and that'll keep it much more efficient, but underneath it'll look more like a giant marketplace. Maybe some things will be free, just because, but it'll be because someone else is explicitly subsidizing you, but we will have the tools built in underneath to make it a paid internet anytime we want to. Similar to that, I think that the censorship regimes across the world are going to fall. So the Great Firewall of China is going to come to an end. And I think that anonymity, encryption, and code is eventually going to make it so that free speech is a real thing online. But it won't be offline because there'll be cameras everywhere, which is another controversial thing. I think we're going to be watched and surveilled constantly in our real physical lives because physical camera is going to cost a fraction of a penny and just be ubiquitous. I think eventually we will start also viewing social media, or at least parts of it, as a disease like a real disease, because I think it's just over-reliance on social media is making people unhappy, where you're just comparing kind of your best self. So you're, you're creating your actual self, sorry, your worst internal self to everybody else's best self. At the same time, the kids will be used to it, so maybe they'll be a lot less shocked and outraged. Like, you know, like right now, every time I go on Twitter, there's an outrage mob that's outraged over something trivial, and they're ready to lynch somebody over it. And I think our kids will have gotten over it. They'll realize that, like, if you're well adapted to modern society, you can't treat everything that you read as if it's happening next door to you. The world is just too big of a place to get outraged over everything. So I think uh, the next generation will have learned how to be on social media and be a lot calmer. Um, and I think as a society, we'll hopefully stop tolerating people 
who get outraged over every little thing and create drama about it. How do you make hard decisions? Do you have any tactics like the coin flip approach or any tactics around making hard decisions? Yeah, generally, if you're really split on a decision and one of them is higher cost to you, either in terms of time or reputation or money, that's actually the correct decision because your brain is always engaging in conflict avoidance. So it always wants to take the easy path. So if it lines up two and it says, oh, I'm split between these two and one requires a lot more effort and a lot more pain, that's usually the correct choice. You're just underweighting it because of the, the pain involved. So I think that's one tool that you can use. A heuristic tool that you can use is make the decision, actually. Write it down. That, that helps psychologically because it cements it. Uh, and then don't tell anybody for 24 hours. And then ask yourself, am I excited to tell people or am I afraid to tell people? And not necessarily other people who are involved in the decision, but I mean like neutral third parties. Like if, if you're, for example, if you're trying to decide whether to break up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, write it down. And then it's not whether you're excited to tell that other person or not, because you're not going to be excited to tell them. But are you excited to tell your other friends? Are you excited to tell your family? Or are you not excited? And that will help show you kind of like, was that the right decision or not the right decision? Another thing is whenever there's an emotional component involved to a decision or to an interaction, I don't make any, I don't do anything in the next 24 hours. You have to let yourself cool off because your emotions are running high and your mind is going to talk into all kinds of things that don't make sense a day later. What are your biggest challenges right now? I guess my biggest challenge right now is just myself. You know, the older you get, the more you realize that life is really mainly a single player game. You're running against yourself. You're born alone. You'll die alone. You have to choose what to do. You have to choose what gives you meaning. You have to choose what kind of people you like. Um, and a lot of it is just about you. And at some point, you figure out that some of these problems are external problems that, yeah, maybe you should go out there and solve them. But many of these problems are just internal problems where you have all these hard-coded and preferences from when you were a kid. You don't even remember why, but you just kind of live your life within narrow boundaries, trying to avoid uh, pain of memories from childhood or you know, living in a world of likes and dislikes and preferences. And the older I get, the more I want to just be open to the world the way it is and less have strong preferences, a strong identity and strong likes and dislikes. So my biggest challenge actually is just my past self. And one of the last questions I have is, how do you say no? I've become a master at that. <laughs> what do you do? Um, so I used to try everything. I used to come up with excuses. And mostly it's around meetings. Everybody wants a meeting these days, even if it's not the most efficient thing or if it's not warranted. So to just defend my time and the scale, I had to come up with all kinds of excuses like, oh, I'm out of town. Oh, I'm really busy. Da, da. And or people are trying to talk you into business transactions or doing deals or working with them. And you don't want to. So you always come up with reasons why. And what I realized at the end of the day is that you don't have to give reasons why. You can just say, you know what, that doesn't feel right to me. And as much as it seems like a cop-out, as much as we all want to be rational beings, no one can argue with your feelings. And your feelings are, especially once you've been, once you're good at something, your feelings are the result of embedded and accumulated knowledge. So you can rely on that knowledge, make the decision, just say, look, that doesn't feel right to me, or that's not a priority for me, or I'm only doing urgent meetings right now so I can focus on what matters, or I'm keeping my calendar free and not scheduling anything. Just be direct, be honest, say no, just say no. And you know, Derek Sivers had a good podcast with Tim Ferriss where he said, it's either hell yes or no. And so the same way, unless you're really excited about doing something, don't do it. And if people ask you why you're not doing it, just or want to pressure you and just say, I'm not excited about it, or it doesn't feel right to me, or it's not a priority for me right now, or I'm focused on other things. But just be as honest as possible. They can't argue with that. And at some level, it also gives you internal congruence because you don't want to be saying one thing and thinking another. That's a surefire recipe for getting talked into things or being lost in your mind. It's much better just to be direct and congruent and integrated and only doing the things that you want to do. 
So for anyone listening to this podcast who wants a meeting, I can't do a meeting, but I'll look at your email. <laughs> well, very cool. I think we'll end on that. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I think that was great. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Naval Ravikant. Thank you so much again, Naval, for coming on the show. He gives us a great way to help us find what we're good at by following up on skills your friends notice you're better at. Also, a nice chat about how a sharp body will facilitate a sharp mind. But most interestingly, a nice in-depth conversation of blockchain and its earth-shattering impact it will have along with cryptocurrencies. And Naval also, as a legendary founder and investor, helps listeners know what other investors and founders are doing wrong. All very helpful discussions here on the show this week. You can also find his links all in the description. You can follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. We have episodes coming out every Tuesday. Thank you once again. And other than that, stay tuned. We'll see you next week on Off Record.